Welcome to the Staying Ages podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Asosa E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we will be talking about how to create a healthy partnership. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to give you guys some insights on what research says about how choosing the right life partner can affect your long-term health. And later, we'll be chatting with our expert for today, Erica St. Bernard, a licensed family and marriage therapist. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. And don't forget, share the love. Send it to a friend, family member, cousin, your mama, whoever needs to hear this information. (laughs) Thank you so much. So y'all may be thinking in your head, what in the world does creating healthy partnerships have to do with health and longevity? Well, the truth is our marriage or long-term partnership can have significant effects on our health and even the health of the children born into those relationships. In addition, choosing the right partner may determine whether or not you have support in the event that you do actually face a real health challenge. Isolation during those challenging moments can be damaging not only for your health, but they can slow recovery because having a strong and healthy partnership can contribute to our resilience and our ability to bounce back from health challenge. Although I have never been married yet, I have experienced firsthand how a bad relationships can affect my personal health or leave me unsupported in times when I needed it the most. I've also experienced the contrary and noticed that my health improved in a good relationship. And guess what? The research doesn't lie. It supports the fact that healthy relationships do, in fact, promote good health. The first guy to investigate the connection between marriage and health was a British epidemiologist named William Farr, who in 1858 set out to study what he called the conjugal condition of the people of France. He divided the adult population into three categories. The married, which was husbands and wives the celibate, which was the men or women who had never gotten married, and the widowed, those who had experienced the death of a spouse. He used birth, death, and marriage records, and he analyzed them for mortality rates for the three different groups at various ages. And his work basically showed that the unmarried died from disease in undue proportion to their married counterparts. And the widowed, he found out, fared the worst of all. But modern studies actually give us more information. So contemporary studies, for instance, have shown that married people are less likely to get pneumonia, have surgery, develop cancer, or have heart attacks. A group of Swedish researchers have found that being married or cohabitating in midlife is associated with a lower risk for dementia. A study of two dozen causes of death in the Netherlands found that in virtually every category, ranging from violent deaths like homicide and car accidents to certain forms of cancer, the unmarried were at far higher risk than the married. However, several new studies show that marriage advantage doesn't extend to those in troubled relationships, which can leave a person far less healthy than if he or she had never married at all. One study suggested that a stressful marriage can be as bad for the heart as a regular smoking habit. 
Wow. And despite years of research suggesting that single people have poorer health than those who marry, a major study that was released in 2009 concluded that single people who have never married have better health than those who married and then divorced. A number of epidemiological studies suggest that unhappily married couples are at higher risk for heart attacks and cardiovascular disease than happily married couples. In 2000, the Journal of American Medical Association published a three-year Swedish study of 300 women who had been hospitalized with severe chest pains or a heart attack. The study found that those who reported the highest levels of marital stress were nearly three times as likely to suffer another heart attack or require a bypass or other procedure. The Journal of Health and Social Behavior published a study also tracking the marital history and health of nearly 9,000 men and women in their 50s and 60s. In this particular study, which grew out of the work by the researchers at the University of Chicago, they found that when married people became single again, either by divorce or because of the death of the spouse, they suffered a decline in physical health from which they never fully recovered. These men and women had a 20% more chronic health issues like heart disease, diabetes, than those that were still married to their first husband or wife by middle age. The divorced and widowed also had aged less gracefully, reporting more problems going up and down the stairs or walking longer distances. In one study you probably have heard about, because it's kind of popular, um, James Cohen, he's an assistant professor of psychology and a neuroscientist at the University of Virginia, recruited 16 women who scored relatively high on a questionnaire assessing their marital happiness. He then placed the women in three different situations while monitoring their brains. In one situation, to stimulate stress, he subjected the women to mild electric shock. In a second, the shock was administered, but the woman held the hand of a stranger. And in the third situation, she held the hand of her husband. Both instances of hand-holding reduced the neural activity in areas of the woman's brain associated with stress. But when the woman who had the highest marital happiness scores were holding their husband's hands during the electric shock, it actually resulted in a calming of the brain regions associated with pain, similar to the effect brought about by use of a pain-relieving drug. So the conclusion, when we look at the bigger picture, is the mere fact of being married or partner, it seems, isn't enough to protect our health long term. You need to be in a healthy partnership in order for it to contribute to fostering great health and, in turn, longevity. And today's guest is going to help us get to some things we can do to ensure our partnerships are healthy and that we make the right choice if we are not yet partnered. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll speak to our amazing guest. So stay tuned. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of TheRawGirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. 
I'm Associate E, Certified Nutrition Specialist and Behavioral Coach. I'm Zanette Watts, Trichologist and Cause Educator, and we are the co-founders of Revivify Hair Lab. After seeing my clients struggle with hair loss or thinning because of nutritional deficiencies, hormonal balance, and poor diet, and after treating clients with severe scalp damage, alopecia, dermatitis, dandruff, and other scalp issues, we realized that together, we could help our clients better by combining our nutrition and hair science superpowers into one holistic service that helps you revive and fortify your hair no matter what state it's in. Whether you are losing hair, have moderate to extreme damage to your scalp, have thinning hair, are balding, or simply are struggling with how to grow your hair, our service can help. If you are interested in learning more, check us out on the web at revivifyhairlab.com or on Instagram at revivifyhairlab. At Revivify Hair Lab, together, together we, we bring, bring your, hair your hair back, back to life. life. Today's guest is Erica St. Bernard. She is a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist practicing in Bowie, Maryland, who has been in practice for seven years. She received her clinical degree for marriage and family therapy from Liberty University, and she provides therapy for adolescents, young adults, couples, and families, assisting them in reaching their personal and relational goals. She utilizes a variety of therapy models and techniques, including structural family therapy, client-centered therapy, experiential therapy, and narrative therapy in order to support individuals, couples, or families as they improve and enhance their overall function in life and relationships. As an ordained minister, she also infuses faith-based and spiritually sensitive insights, particularly when her clients request them. Hey, girl, hey! Hey, girl. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. I'm glad to be here. So we have so much to cover. Um, I feel like with relationships, there's just so many places we could start. But I mm-hmm. figured that we could start with how do we even dis- like how do what are the things we need to look for in finding a good partner? What are the qualities we should be looking for? What are some of the things that we need to be paying attention to in the initial honeymoon phase? Yes. I think first things first is to kind of spend some time with yourself to kind of think about what kind of partner are you? Mm. How do you show up in relationships? Because I think that influences the type of partner that will complement you well. Mm-hmm. And so if you know that you are a person who needs tons of quality time and you like to go on long walks and you like that quiet togetherness, then maybe a partner who might not be well suited for you. Even oh. if they are very attractive <laughs> and they have it all, all together, right? If that person is not going to be available in the way that you want or need them to be, then maybe that's an indication that even though they may check all the other boxes, this might not be a good fit for you, right? So before we can really think about what a partner is going to bring to us, I always challenge clients to consider what it is that you, who is it that you're bringing to the relationship and how you can be really clear about that so that as you are thinking about the value they can add to you, you're already very mindful that I'm already a package. I'm already a gift. I'm already this great, you know, resource, this great asset before this person adds value to my life. I think starting there really sets the stage so that we're not, 
you know, so to speak, head over heels from the very beginning because he looks good or smells nice. Or right. Because he has this, you know, so many figure job or drives this kind of vehicle. We're not caught up in those very temporal things. Yeah. Um, but we can really think about the character of the person. We can think about their levels of integrity. We can think about the way they show up for their own families in the season that we're able to observe them. Mm. So I think it's those things. But when we're clear first with ourselves and with who we are and what we bring to the relationship, I think that really gives us an opportunity to see with clear eyes, if you will, what we're actually looking at when we when we look for a partner. That's so good. Are there red flags we should look out for early on in relationship? <laughs> yes. The challenge with red flags, right, we talked before we started recording about trauma. Mm. Sometimes what um, what may appear as a yellow flag to one person would be a red flag to somebody else, which is why I always think about the value of therapy um, at any course and season of our lives, but especially when we believe we are ready to partner or we have found the person we want to partner ourselves with, because therapy gives us an opportunity to see um, again, with clearer lens, with a different perspective, with um, varied nuances, the things that we probably saw but overlooked because things were so sweet, things were so good, things were so amazing, like you said, the honeymoon phase. And so really being able to think about, you know, is this person possessive? Do they seem really upset when I'm unable to answer their calls or when I don't respond back to their text message almost immediately? Are they um you know, do they require more of me than I can reasonably give, right? If I'm supposed to be working from nine to five and they're calling me every hour on the hour, are right. they respecting the boundary that I have, right? Are they respecting my own needs? Um, you know, questions of, do I always have to pay for things, right? Not to suggest that it's not, you know, not a good thing to go Dutch sometimes and things like that, but is it that it's always falling on me, right? Do I always have to be the person to pick up or send the Uber? Do I have to look out for myself? Does the person call to check on me to see if I made it home safely? Do, like those kinds of basic care things that I think yep. sometimes we're like, oh, well, you know, it's fine. He, that's just not who he is. And right. It's okay. I'm, we going to go Dutch for the 37th time. Right. <laughs> at some point, you know, and this is Dutch at McDonald's. So I'm like, really, how many dollar menu items do you have to buy with this person to realize that this might not be? It. Unless you love McDonald's and the dollar <laughs> menu is your gig and enjoy, right? But really thinking about how does this person show up for you? And if you find mm. that you're leaving time spent with them, feeling low on energy, feeling mm. really drained and depleted, feeling like just not good about yourself, right? Do they say mean things to you, even in jokes, right? Are they like, you know, right. they mean things in jokes, right? We're like anything can be made to sound funny. But when we think yes. about the heart of it, right, we talk about even comedians say that there's some truth in every joke, right? So really thinking about what kinds of things do they say to me? How do I feel when I'm with them? Thinking about what your energy is like before they come into your presence and then when they leave your presence. If there's any kind of question about who a person is and how they're showing up with you, then I think it's important for us to pause and slow down. The other thing is to consider the people in your life that you love and care about and that you know love and care about you. What are their assessments of this person? Mm. Because the people who really, and I don't mean the people who you think are envious or jealous, but I even consider, think about those people too. Because if enough people are saying something about whoever this person is and it's aligned, right? If five people are saying something similar, then it may be really good time to pause, slow down, consider, be prayerful if you're a believer about this person and about, you know, what God may be wanting to show you or what this person may be showing you, whether God is involved or not, right? Depending on where you find yourself. Yes. But, you know, what is this person showing me? And is this something I can align myself with? Not just now, but forever, if we're talking about partnership that's going to lead to marriage or some long-term relationship. So good. Um, are you familiar with the Gottman Institute? I 
am familiar. Yep. Okay. So I kind of love how they break stuff down and they talk about the four horsemen or things that you should look out, the criticism, contempt, stonewalling, defensiveness. Have you seen that in your counseling? Do you feel like that is true? Absolutely. People tend to, again, sometimes it's rooted in in trauma. Sometimes it's rooted just in upbringing and how we were raised and what we observed and what we, you know, what we saw or did not see. And so we pick up these strategies. And many times what happens is people aren't aware of it under those names, right? We don't, they don't say I'm stonewalling or, you know, yeah. I'm being defensive or I'm, I'm criticizing. But each of those elements does tend to show up most often in relationships because these, this is the person that I feel closest to or safest with. And so in that space, most times those defense mechanisms, if you will, show up because I'm, the relationship feels threatened. Mm. And so instead of saying... I feel like you're slipping away and I want you to draw closer. We'll criticize when the whole, the goal of that criticism is to draw you in, but does it do that? Absolutely not. No, it pushes you away further. And you're criticizing. It's not going to pull closer to you. Yeah. If anything, they're going to pull away. And so it's really getting to the core of saying, how do we individually find better ways to communicate what we're thinking and feeling about our partner and about the conflict we're facing so that we can, course correct and get back to the space where we can say, hey, when you said that, it made me feel this way. My feelings were hurt when this happened. Can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. So that we're owning the feeling component that many times gets left out of relationships because we're thinking about the nuts and bolts Mm -hmm. and the big big pieces that seem bigger, like the decisions we have to make and the things we need to do. But when we negate the emotional component, we really do miss an opportunity to feel more connected and to build intimacy in real ways. Yeah, that makes sense. How important are love languages in your counseling? Do you find that couples who are having issues have neglected to understand how their partner works in that regard? Yes. So what I generally do with couples, um, again, I see couples from pre-engagement to premarital to after they've been married. And I have some couples who have been married upwards of 20 years. And so um, at any point, regardless of where a couple finds me in that span of time, whether they're dating or, again, pre-engagement or premarital or already married, I talk to them about love languages. It's one of the first questions I ask after we get some of the family history. Um, I ask them, do you know your love language? And if so, okay, great. What, are, what is your love language? And then do you know your partner's love language? And sometimes one partner will have read the book or heard something about it, and the other partner may not know anything about it. And so often it becomes a home assignment. Mm-hmm. And I ask them to go home and find a, you know, do the assessment on online. Gary Chapman is the author and originator of the five love languages. And so I send them to Google. I say, go Google five love languages, find a survey. It's about 21 questions. Doesn't take much time. I ask them to figure out what their love language is and then to think about two specific ways that they can communicate to their partner how to show up for them in that love language. So you're giving your partner not just the language, but you're telling them what dialect you speak. Mm. Right. So quality time, as as my example with clients, is that before we had a child, my husband and I spent quality time together a lot of the time because it was just the two of us. So almost anything we did could count as quality time. But now that we have a little person who is very much a social butterfly and a cuddler, like like we want to be kind of, you know, on the (laughs) sofa and she's like wiggling into the middle, that's no longer quality time. That's family time. And so we've had to be intentional over the years of having a little person to reconfigure what quality time looks like. Mm. So now it looks like, you know, um, a couple's walk instead of a everybody family walk. Or sometimes it will look like movie night after she's in bed, we make snacks and drink wine or something like that. So it really just depends. Um, but again, the dialect is different because family time is great. But for couples, they need their own individual, you know, together time that is separate from family and other people. And so really giving your partner, these are the specific ways that you can love me as it concerns quality time or physical touch or words of affirmation or receiving gifts or acts of service. Mm, so good. 
How important are boundaries and relationships with the opposite sex when you were married? Oh, we, um, I took a deep breath right there. <laughs> that's one of the challenges that comes to therapy is that one, we've not been really clear about the boundary mm-hmm. of our marriage or the boundary around our relationship as a couple, husband and wife. We've not been intentional to be you know, mindful of those boundaries within the relationship. And so then that makes it harder to sometimes um, create boundaries or even, uh, what's the word, maybe reinforce the boundaries with other people outside of the relationship. So example, um, so I know some couples have challenges where one partner refuses to wear their ring. And how sometimes that can look like, wow. you know, you are refusing to look partnered or whatever. And so then what kind of attention does that draw? And then there are other schools of thought that say, well, regardless of wearing a ring, some people will try anyway. And so it really depends on how we define boundaries and how couples talk about what boundaries are. So there's a certain set series of conversations and not a one-time conversation. I tell couples, it is a series of conversations that suggest this is how we're going to govern ourselves when we're together. And this is how we will govern ourselves when we're away from each other. Mm. So if we're at work, I don't believe, I don't, and I'm, I wrestle with the idea of a work husband and a work wife, right? Because sometimes within that connotation, um, you know, there's, the assumption or possible assumption that we're sharing things with them that we don't share with other people. And so then where do we draw the line with the sharing that happens there versus the sharing that happens at home with our actual partner? Yeah. And so really getting clear about how much access do we give, you know, people of the opposite sex. I know people who have best friends who are male or female, maybe, you know, same opposite sex best friends. And so thinking about what that looks like in marriage. And so in the premarital pre-engagement phase, That's one of the themes I cover with couples to really ask them to do an inventory, if you will, Mm -hmm. of the friendships and the people that are valuable to either partner and to consider um, for yourself, but then also for your partner or from their vantage point, if there are any perceived threats as a result of these relationships that exist. And then to talk about those so that you can develop effective and healthy boundaries for how to operate and navigate those friendships and maintain them where possible, but then maybe to tweak them a little bit so that partners are feeling aligned and, you know, tended to maintain those relationships. Yes, that makes sense. Um, So I feel like I'm Nigerian and I feel like I mean, Nigerians just want everyone to hurry up and get married, the, you know, the moment they get out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, they you hurry up and get married and then people don't really get divorced, even though some of the relationships are super toxic. Mm-hmm. People have these like, you know, die hard, we going to stick it out mentalities. And then I feel yeah. like Western mentality is actually almost the complete opposite, mm-hmm. where it's just like you get on my nerves. You just did that wrong. See you later. So it's just it's so interesting to me. But in your experience as a counselor, are there telltale signs that I should throw in the towel and that this relationship is past mending? I think it's hard to say, you know, to this class, a general blanket. You know, I know the Gottmans, you mentioned their research. Their research lab is kind of founded on the understanding that they've studied couples kind of literally in a lab where they bring them in and they have them sleep there, live there, and they watch them and follow them and observe them. And so they suggest that there are some definite indicators for them um, that this couple will rise or fall, so to speak. Um, so I, there's there's some research around those kinds of things, but I can't say, again, I don't know, in fairness, how many of um, the people or the couples that the Gottmans have studied are people of color. And so I right. think that is also a dynamic that is missing from much of the literature and much of the research. We are you know, among the most under 
research populations of people. And so when we're talking about, you know, mm. um, norms and things like that, it's really hard to, you know, do a, you know, an, a, a, you know, one-to-one correspondence or analysis of what the research says and what shows up in our relationships because our histories are so very different. Mm. And so we're bringing so many different elements of who we are to the table that may or may not allow you know, some of what the research suggests to really show up for us. And sometimes that looks like it's more of an issue for us than the research suggests for our counterparts of other races. And sometimes it looks like it's not as much of an issue for us as it is for them. And so I think it really just depends. So I think to your point, each person, each couple has to really, you know, do the work of Mm -hmm. of figuring out who they are and how they work together. And so if you're finding that you are having the same conversation about the same thing, Maybe there's a sign that, like, there's a signal, like, yeah, this is going to be a problem. Or if you are unable to have conversations about certain things and you've tried a couple different ways, a couple different times, a couple different, you know, you've gone, you know, you've climbed on top of the roof, you've talked through the window, (laughs) you've talked to the basement, like, you've tried different ways. You've read a book about it, you've read a blog post, you watched a vlog, you tried a whole bunch of different (laughs) options. and you're just not able to make headway or gain a new traction, then I think that's another opportunity to kind of consider if this is a repairable thing, if this is a right. thing that can Or even if the person is willing to try something sure, different. Because that's the other piece. Absolutely. That's the other piece of it. One person can't save a relationship. Yep. One person can't maintain a relationship. You have to be willing and interested in investing in the work of healthy relationship. And so if you find that you are, I give you give couples the analogy of pushing a car up a hill. That's not a job anybody is interested in, but it's one that can be done if the two people are willing to partner together, right? One person is going to push, the other person is going to steer, the other person is going to, you know, maybe they'll take turns, maybe they'll swap out, maybe they will hopefully, you know, seek wise counsel, right? They'll they'll talk to somebody, they'll get a counselor, they'll get a therapist or some support person who has a vantage point, some skills, some training, some understanding. I talk to couples about the value of um, accountability couples. So hopefully there'd be people who might be five or 10 years ahead of you in marriage that be able to pour into yes. you and be a sounding space for you to process, oh my gosh, I'm sick of him. Oh my gosh, she gets on my nerves and <laughs> come back to the middle and not always, you know, try to flee. I do think there are some things, certainly when we talk about like sexual abuse in marriage, mm. because that does happen, that would be kind of a, a hard stop for some people. Another one would certainly be physical, um, you know, physical aggression or violence, yes. uh, known as intimate. Um, those those tend to be two of the kind of, and I won't say easy, but like, you know, pretty visible, obvious kind of like, yeah, I don't know how long you stick around after that. But I do know there are people who have stuck it out, as you suggested, whether for cultural reasons, sometimes for religious reasons, other times, again, rooted in trauma, not thinking they could ever find anything better or different. Yeah. Themselves. And so all of those things have to be tended to on individual levels. And so to say that there's a blanket of these are the absolute things that could not be repaired because work through some really mucky stuff and come out on the other side yeah. redeemed and healed and they've recovered and they're doing really well. So I don't want to say that this would be a reason to absolutely walk away. Yeah. If you find that you're with a partner who's not willing to do the work, then sometimes that in and of itself is yep. an indicator, you know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We might have reached a point of turn, so to speak. That makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about emotional abuse. You brought up abuse. It's much mm-hmm. more subtle and it, it's, sure. it's sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it. Mm-hmm. But what are some things that that people can look out for and be like, wait a minute, I don't think that 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 don't feel right. That feels sure. like it might be a bit emotional sure. abuse. Yeah, you're speaking to something. I think it's about intuition, right? It's thinking about our gut. What does our gut say? How do we feel? Again, go back to the energy. How do we feel when we're with this person? 
Does it feel like they care about us? Does it feel like we really matter to them? Their words may say so. They may buy us gifts. They may take us to nice places. But how do we feel when we're with them? Right. How do we feel when they call? How do we feel when they text us? Right. Because for some people, there is literally a visceral response. Anytime my sister calls or texts me, I get excited because that's my sister. And we're really close. And we talk about some of everything all the time. And it's usually a really great time, even when it's been difficult to talk about stuff because it's a hard space to talk. But that relationship, there's something really that energizes me in that space. Similarly with my husband. Generally speaking, when he calls, when he texts, I'm excited to see the message. I'm excited to see this notification. But sometimes if we are mindful and if we slow ourselves down a bit to think about, wait, each time this person texts me, I kind of feel like my breathing changes. Mm. I feel like my heart is racing and it's more like a fear than it is an excitement. Or do I feel judged all the time? Do I feel like I'm having to walk on eggshells? Do I feel like I can't really think or can't really speak what I think? Or do I feel that I have to censor what I'm thinking or feeling to make them comfortable? Do I feel like I have to shrink and not be my full self with this person? Each of these things is an indicator that this may not be an emotionally healthy space for you because relationships that are healthy require the opportunity and the ability for both partners to be fully present and transparent with Mm. their thoughts and feelings. And so if you are unable or feel that you're unable to share with your partner your deepest thoughts, your, you know, your, your hope, your highest hopes and deepest longings, then that suggests that maybe there's some opportunities for some work to be done. Um, certainly where it is with regard to name calling and with regard to, you know, um, again, we talked about when people joke, but they say really mean or hurtful things in the jokes. Yeah, I hate um, that you so much. bring those things to their attention and they kind of override. Like, oh, no, that was just a joke. Right. But if that joke continues to happen, right, like how many times can you call me that name? It's such it a backhanded way of disrespecting right. someone and chipping away at their self-esteem. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly what emotional abuse does. And mm. that is generally how much physical abuse begins. People don't generally Mm. knock somebody upside the head the first time. Right. There's usually these subtle little small jabs and digs that begin to chip away at your self-esteem, that begin to chip away at your self-worth. They say things like, you'll never find anybody like me. Nobody could ever love you. You're not worthy. Those kinds of things that over initially we don't believe it. But then over time, because this person does these other nice things for us, right? They take us nice places. They buy us nice things. They, you know, buy us tickets to do this or go there when the world is open again, right? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, all these other things. But then when they say what they say. So I tell clients to listen to what people say and mm-hmm. to pay attention to what they don't say. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just enough to say, I love you. It's, you know, what is your what do your actions look like in addition to that? Or if your actions suggest that you love me, but your words say something different. Does that make sense? Does that add mm-hmm. up? So really kind of taking stock of not just, you know, how do I feel? Because I think that's the other piece we haven't touched on, touched on yet, but this sexual dynamics, right? This, this yes. you know, there's this, when we are sexually engaged with somebody, if sex is really amazing and it's this really gratifying, enjoyable experience, sometimes that numbs us to seeing the things we see with our eyes or the things we hear with our ears. And so we really do have to get some clarity about, mm-hmm. you know, yes, this sexual experience is amazing, but what what is it costing me at the same time? Yes. Right? Because it's like, yeah, that's good. But if I feel like crap afterwards because of how you treat me or how you speak to me, or maybe you don't even take me out. Maybe you don't allow me to meet people because you're afraid of me or not afraid of me, but because you, you know, maybe I'm not the same caliber of woman you dated before or because I'm more educated than women you dated before or because of whatever reasons a person can come up with, right, to not allow you to be seen with them in public. Yeah. What does that mean? And how do you, how much more do you accept of that, if that makes sense? No, it does. Um 
so Christian dating and regular dating are completely different. Yeah. Um, what are the things that you've seen? Have you canceled, counseled Christian couples who are in the dating phase or in the married phase? And what are the differences that you observe? Sure. I think I have clients that are individuals and couples who are Christian and who are, as you suggested, trying to navigate the world of dating and realizing that there are you know, grave differences between the two, wanting to honor God and wanting to honor faith and also wanting to be coupled, right? And so Mm -hmm. when the majority of the world, as we know, is doing things by their own standards, standards that change from day to day, from week to week, and when we are trying to hold to whether it's scripture that's influencing you or cultural beliefs and background or whatever other kind of spiritual aspects or components of how you develop your faith and shape your worldview, you know, it's 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 tricky to kind of navigate and find what is my way. And I think that's the space where Christians have the greatest opportunity to be prayerful and to ask God to give them wisdom, to give them insight. There are a number of great books that speak to partnership, that speak to, um, you know, seeking soulmates, to, you know, people who are aligned. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves, right, Scripture speaks about not being unequally yoked. Mm-hmm. And I know that that is an argument many times, um, you know, within the church or by people in the church, you know, with regard to salvation and whether or not partners are equally yoked, meaning that they have the same or, you know, save, saving faith in Jesus Christ. And when we say same, that doesn't mean that we started on the same day and we know the same number of scriptures or we pray the same way, right. but that we both have a very foundational understanding, not just that the Bible exists, not just that Jesus walked the earth and died and was crucified and buried, but that we are allowing our faith in God to shape how we think and how we show up in the world. Mm-hmm. And so when a part when a partnership kind of has that understanding and that framework at the foundation, they can tend to do so much more. I find that my couples who get stuck in spaces of dating is because one of them is, you know, seeking to follow Christ and the other is like, I'm just out here. Yeah. So they're like, wait, how do we do this? Because I really like you or I love you or maybe we've been sexually engaged. And so a part of me is feeling like we got to make this work or maybe because all of my friends are getting married. And so you've got to be the one. Right. And deep down, I know you're really not the one, but mm. for now, you'll you'll do. Right. And so then we are in this space where we are occupying time and space with people who we're not suited for and who are not suited for us. And so therein lies some of the frustration, I think, that comes with dating, especially as we're Christian. And so I wish there was a, a way to say this is a specific thing for Christian women and men to do. Yeah. Their dating lives would be great. There is no such thing, right? Because dating has so many nuances. Yeah. But I do think kind of back to the first question, how do we choose a partner? Really thinking about who am I and how do I show up in a relationship and being prayerful, not just about the list, because most of us have written out a list of attributes of how tall he'll be, how much money he'll make, all those kinds of things. So beyond that list, being prayerful and saying, God, show me. I talk to couples about purpose. What would be the purpose of our relationship? Yes. Because it's not just cute hashtags and pictures and photo shoots of this experience and this life goal and this milestone in our marriage or relationship. But what is, what do we believe God is joining us together to create, to produce? Yes. To not just, you know, not just another cute couple on IG. I think that's a really key distinction. And I don't think that that applies necessarily to every single person who gets married. I think everyone, you know, does it their own way. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the kingdom purpose is something that is very specific, you know, sure. to Christian dating where people sure. really hopefully are prayerfully considering hopefully. that. Yes. That makes it's sense. essential. I think it, it makes, it's where the rubber meets the road in terms of, 
you know, you talked about like, how do we know where to draw the line in the sand and say, okay, enough is enough. Sometimes faith is what helps us to hold on and not just hold on to a mess, but hold on so we can gain the stamina to do the work we need to do Mm. to recover or to restore the relationship or to see, you know, our partner recover and heal from their trauma that allowed them not to show up for us before, but as a result of therapy and faith in God and doing some of those spiritual disciplines that help us to feel stronger. You know, we can see on the other side, like, wow, we stuck it out together. I prayed for them while they did the work. We did the work together. And then we came out on the other side, you know, better for it, you know, stronger and greater and wiser and all those things. So I think it really it, it depends. And I think, you know, each couple, I say, has to find their own rhythm. And I think early in dating, it's really being clear about our intentions and about what we believe will be the outcome of our relationship or what we desire it to be. So when couples come to me at that pre-engagement and premarital space, I say to them, even if you can't answer the question now, the question is on the table. What do you believe the purpose is for your relationship? Yeah. So that from the beginning with me, they can begin thinking about that because that is what will anchor them when, as people say, the love fades or you are yep. so far on my nerves that I can't take it anymore. <laughs> or, you know, you I on the, the nerve yeah. after the last nerve. Okay? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So when you touch that nerve, I'm able to tap into my faith. And even before that, because I'm mindful that you're getting on my nerves and right. so tapping into faith earlier than waiting until you're on the nerve after the last one. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you online and, and book an appointment with you? Sure. So I am online. Website is www.yourlifeswell. So that's Y-O-U-R-L-I-F is in Frank, E-S is in Sam, well, W-E-L-L dot com. And then I'm also on IG under the same handle at Your Lifeswell. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erica. This has been amazing. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all, it's time to take some questions from Instagram or email. Remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM, slide up in my DMs, or respond to the call for questions on my profile at The Raw Girl on Instagram, or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. The question for today is from Sheila via email. She says, Dear Raw Girl, I want to lose weight and change my diet but my husband is not on the same page. What do I do? Child, (laughs) Sheila, you are not alone. Uh, In my first office, I sometimes actually would counsel couples together on nutrition uh, because it just, it's more efficient, usually because they're making food choices together. And I noticed that it could sometimes put a strain on things for a client that was making a lot of progress if one partner was kind of getting in the the way or just not on the same page. Hopefully you're in a healthy relationship and you can have a serious discussion about how you're feeling and why this change would be good for both of you. If that yields no results, um, you may end up in the situation that some of my clients ended up in where they had to basically find ways to prepare their own meals while the rest of the family eats other food. This isn't ideal, um, and it's also not the best for willpower because you might still have some unwanted processed foods or junk foods around the house. The other thing you can do is work on showing your husband, not telling him, that the meals will still be enjoyable. So if 
you are the one who does most of the cooking. I know sometimes it's the other way around, but if if you are, then experiment with flavorful, healthy recipes and don't even mention what the ingredients are. I find that sometimes it's best to show, not tell, and make sure that whatever it is tastes amazing. If he begins to gain health benefits without sacrificing flavor, he may end up on your same page slowly but surely. I hope that helps you, sis. All right, that's all she wrote for today's show. Hopefully this show has given you guys some things to ponder. If you're not yet partnered, and if you already are, hopefully you got some inspiration and tools for how to improve the health of your partnership. In order to set ourselves up for long and healthy lives, who we choose to partner with matters. As their preferences, habits, and lifestyle choices can also affect our own. We can inspire each other or we can bring each other down. If you are unpartnered, take the time to get to know you as deeply as you can so that you can make a choice that will continue to propel you towards living your best life. In the words of Barbara Cage, love is a partnership of two unique people who bring out the very best in each other and who know that even though they are wonderful as individuals, they are even better together. That's the kind of partnership I wish for all of y'all. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you are looking for more health tips or have a health question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. For more about the show, to subscribe and listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. Music.